This morning we're going to pick back up in Revelation chapter 2. So if you want to get, get there, we look through the beginning of the chapter. This is the, one of the two chapters in the beginning of Revelation, which are the letters that Jesus dictated to John to deliver to the seven churches in Asia. And so we talked a couple weeks ago through um, the first seven verses of chapter 2, which is the letter that was written to the church in Ephesus. And you know, they, kind of the, the point for us in that is, is towards the end. And, and, and we talked about this that at that time, about as we're going to look through these letters, that we're going to recognize a pattern in the letters that Jesus had dictated to the churches, where he, he begins with um, an introduction. He, he says, this is to the such and such church. Um, and it's from, it doesn't just say love Jesus or from Jesus. It, he, he, he gives a description that is oftentimes appropriate to what he has to say to the individual church. And then he addresses something. Usually he, he begins by uh, commending them for something that, that he recognizes is going on in the church. So like in Ephesus, he says, you know, I know you're, that, that you are enduring patiently and bearing up under, under, uh, under, under uh, persecution. And I know your works and how you are uh, uh, working against the, the false teachers and things like that. Um, but often in the letters, he says, but I have this against you. And this is where we ended last week was really talking about this with the church in Ephesus, that they were a, a doctrinal church. They were a theologically sound church. But what, what the Lord had against the church really was that in their zeal for the doctrine, they had lost their first love for Christ. They, they, had, they had sort of not, he doesn't accuse them of being legalistic, but he says, you know, you guys have, have maybe, you, you shouldn't give up the doctrine, but you shouldn't give up the, the, the intimacy that you have with me either, the zeal that you had for me at first. And so he tells them, repent of this by returning back to this way that you were before, right? And if you don't do it, he says, I'm going to remove your lampstand. That was a, a statement that, that he, would, he would remove his presence from the church. They would be kind of without him if they didn't repent of that. And so um, that's, that's where we, we ended this last week in verse 7 or two weeks ago with um, the, 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 the final statement that he, he makes. And this is part of the pattern where he says to each of the churches, you know, listen to what I'm saying. And if you do what I say, if you conquer, if you overcome the things that are the issue, then he says in verse 7 that I'll grant you to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In other words, you know, if you, if, you, if you come back to the first love, I'm not going to remove my presence from you, but, but instead you'll be rewarded with eternal life. You'll, you'll eat of the tree of, the, 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 the tree of life that's in the paradise. You'll be with me where I am, and that'll be the reward. And so that's sort of the pattern, quick summary of the first letter to Ephesus, because today we're picking up the second letter, um, which starts in verse 8 and runs through verse 11. This is kind of the shortest of the letters in Revelation 2 and 3 to the seven churches. This one's written to the church in Smyrna. Um, and this, this letter is partly short because this is one of only two out of the seven that Jesus doesn't have anything where he tells them, I have something against you. He doesn't have anything against this church at that moment. He's not really calling them to repent of anything. But yet the, the letter follows much the same pattern with you know, noting that exclusion. Uh, Revelation 2, verse 8. Let's just read the letter. It runs through verse uh, uh, 11. Somebody want to read that? Revelation 2, 8 through 11. For me, Sean, you want to read that? Thanks. Yeah. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right, 
first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that they may be tested, or that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. All right. Thanks, John. Thanks. So this is, this is uh, as it says, the letter to the church in Smyrna, the angel in verse 8 of the church of Smyrna. As we've said, that's, that's written to each of the churches in that way, who it's to, and the angels being the messengers of the church, or the leaders, the elders, the pastors of the church, to be read to the rest of the church. Um, and, and it's perfectly reasonable to assume that not just this letter was to Smyrna, but to all the churches in, in the way of whatever applies to you, this applies to you also. You get that as you look at verse 11 where he says that whoever has an ear, let him hear what the, the Spirit says to the churches. And so these weren't necessarily exclusive only for those churches at that moment. But there are things that are addressed, and we see it here in one of these, in one of these verses, that, that the Lord addresses something at that moment in Smyrna. Okay, so we'll work through verse by verse here and look at this. But before we do the background on Smyrna, um, if you have a map either in the Bible or the one we've been using as we're preaching through Acts that, that shows you where the churches are, um, Smyrna is in central, West Central Asia Minor. It's about 40 or 50 miles, I think, north of Ephesus. It was a port city. And you see this on the map that, that there was a very extensive bay that came off the Aegean um, pretty far inland in Asia Minor. And this is at the end of that bay is where they put Smyrna. It happened to be a very um, well-protected location because of this lengthy bay. But it also was a, a good shipping area because you could get the boats further inland and have to you know, load up the carts a little bit less. So Smyrna was actually quite an important city. They say at this time it was probably the second largest city in the region and rivaled Ephesus. Um, in size and economic importance. Historically, Smyrna had been around for hundreds, if not thousands of years before this. About 600 BC, the city had been destroyed by an invading army, um, and the Greeks rebuilt it in around 290 BC. So at this point, it's about 300 years old. Um, But relative to some of the other ancient cities in the the, the region, it was kind of new. (laughs) And so it had been rebuilt and was, it was quite a beautiful place. They, they, many said it was the most beautiful city in Asia. That's what we kind of know about Smyrna. Jesus addresses the church in Smyrna in verse 8 and writes to them, quote, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. This is how Jesus addresses them as, hey, to you guys in Smyrna, from me, Jesus. He doesn't just say from me, Jesus. He says from the one who... Uh, who, who, who uh, is the first and the last one who came and died, or came, died and came back to life. We, we, we recognize this, that we've already seen some of these phrases in chapter 1. Okay? When, when, when Jesus sort of revealed himself to John, John gave us a description of what he, what he looked like. We talked about that stuff in chapter 1. This, the, this mention of the first and the last, you see if you look back in Revelation 1, verse 8. 
even before the description of Jesus' appearance. Verse 8, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. The Alpha and the Omega is the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. He is the first and the last. And he says it again, he repeats it in verse 17 and 18. Actually, John repeats it when he describes who Jesus is in verse 17 and 18. Right? He says, when I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, Jesus did, and said, fear not, I'm the first and the last. And the living one, I died, and behold, I live, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death in Hades. This is Jesus' own description of himself um, a number of times here in just these first couple of chapters. But um, might not quite realize this, but it, it references back to a few verses in Isaiah 44. It's a, a, a reference to a, a, an Old Testament description. So somebody want to grab Isaiah 44 and read verses 6 through 8 here? All right, Byron, thanks. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. There is no God besides me. Who is like him? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him be counted to me in order. In the time that I establish the ancient nations, and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. There's uh, a few things that are repeated through these verses, right? Verse 6 says, who, who, who is described as speaking in verse 6 of Isaiah 44? The Lord, the King of Israel, and Israel's Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. There's a rhetorical question in verse 8 at the end. What's the, what's the question in verse 8? Hey, is there any other God beside me? The Lord, the Lord of hosts, the Redeemer of Israel, the, the King. Is there anybody other than me? No. The answer is no. Okay. He, he, God, God, God answers his own question and says, well, I don't know of any. So if God doesn't know of any other God beside himself, is there any other God beside himself? I, mean, I don't think so. Right Now, Jesus purposefully, I believe, is referencing this when he says, I'm the first and the last. Comes back to this. That's in these verses too. Who's the first and the last? The God that is the Almighty, the Lord, the King of Israel, and there is no other. Who's Jesus claiming to be? As he writes to the church in Smyrna and says, I'm the first and the last. As he reveals himself to John in the first chapter. I'm the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. Who's he revealing himself to be? In case we weren't clear. Hey, to you guys in Smyrna, God's writing to you. The Almighty God. The, the Creator God. The Redeemer God. The, the all-encompassing, all-almighty God. That's, that's me. In case you didn't recognize me. That's who Jesus says he is. That's who he's writing, or how he's writing to them. But he adds... In verse 8 there, in Ephesians, or Revelation 2, verse 8, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. 
Does that strike anybody as an interesting combination? I am the almighty God, the creator of all things, the king of Israel and the redeemer of all those to be redeemed, the God who knows of no other God. I died. Does that strike anybody as odd? It's like a definition of God. Undiable. Unable to die. Yet Jesus is put, combines these things in a, a seamless statement of who he is. Not only that he died, but more importantly, right, that he's been raised from the dead. Or maybe equally as importantly, depending on how, you do, how, you, how you're talking about this. But Jesus points to this and says this, you know, you might tend to think that God can't die, but you'd be wrong. I'm proclaiming myself to be the first and the last, but I did die. And I have been raised back to life. And, and, and I think that this is purposeful here relative to Smyrna because what we're about to read about Smyrna is about the persecution that's going on in Smyrna, right? These guys are under the threat of death. And Jesus is giving them the assurance, which is the only grounds of any assurance that we should ever have, is that Jesus is God. He died for our sins and has been raised to new life. Therefore, you might die, but if you're in Christ... You also will yet live, right? He, he sort of begins like that. And so this is, what, this is what he pulls in in verse 8 as Jesus begins. We, 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 we've talked a little bit about this, but here's some more verses that, that, that we should look at. In Hebrews 2, verse 14, I need three volunteers. Hebrews 2, verse 14. Who wants to read that? Phil? All right, and then, and then we'll go to 1 Corinthians 15, Virginia. It'll be verses 54 through 56, and then John 11. Polly, John eleven twenty-five. 25. Uh, Phil, if you're already there in Hebrews 2, 14, let's start there. Is that, is that sound comforting to you guys? That, that Jesus is the one who shares in our flesh and blood so that for the purpose of through death he could destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil. Now if you're facing certain death, does that give you any reassurance? That Jesus is the one who died but has his life again? And in being alive again he demonstrates that he's defeated death? This is, this, is a, this is a massive reassurance, hopefully. It should be something that we would take and, and appreciate in this way. 1 Corinthians 15 is, is um, something somewhat similar here. Virginia, you want to read verses 54 through 56. 1 Corinthians 15. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we could even go to 57, right? But... So in this context, what's our victory over? What's the mocking song that the, the triumphant army is marching down the street? 
Where's your sting of death, right? Who has the victory over what? Death. How do we know? He died and has been raised again. That's who he is. I mean, that, we, we can join in that. His victory ends up being who else's victory? Our victory. Is that for everybody across the board, everywhere in the world? Or is that for those who put their hope and trust in Christ? Why would we put our hope and trust in Christ? Because he died and has already been raised. I mean, this is, this is a triumphant song, right? This, this, this thing that goes on in, in 1 Corinthians 15. And so this is, this is the, the sort of things that ought to come to our mind when we read that Jesus says, I'm the first and the last who died and came to life. And John eleven twenty five, 25, uh, Paulie, this was uh, um, when, when Jesus showed up to raise Lazarus from the dead, right? John 11, verse 25. That's right. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, he says in the next verse. I should have had you read that too. Right? I'm the resurrection and the life. You want, you want, you want to be resurrected? Uh, believe in me. That's the way it's going to go. He, he's encouraging this church in Smyrna to have this in mind, with just, just with his opening. So other thoughts about that, about the, the address, the beginning? We almost got through one whole verse so far. Praise the Lord, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is, this, is a, this is a triumphant introduction that he presents to this church in Smyrna. Now, he continues in verse, uh, verse uh, 9. If I can get back to it, I need to put something here. Revelation 2, 9. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich in the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are uh, a synagogue of Satan. I think this is hopefully a good connection that the, the, the fact that Jesus has already had victory over, the de- at, over death and will raise his people from the dead is a reminder to these guys, as I keep saying, that, that they should keep that in mind as they face their own potential deaths. Smyrna, a little bit more background, I didn't include this earlier, but Smyrna had a famous street known as the Street of Gold. And along this street, you walk down the street and on every side... There were these temples to every, basically every god imaginable. It was, it, was, it was one of those kind of cities. By the time this was written, the city of Smyrna had become kind of a hotbed for emperor worship. There had been emperor worship in that part of the world for about a hundred years. Um, actually, kind of began in Asia in Pergamum, which we might get to talking about today, but um, when, when Augustus was, was crowned Caesar and deified, um, they were the first ones to erect a, a shrine or a temple to the emperor. But this was going on in Smyrna. By the time that John was writing this, under the persecution of Domitian, when Domitian was the emperor, um, the, the, the guys in Smyrna had made it a law in, the, in, the, in, that, uh, in that city that it was a capital offense if you refused to offer sacrifice to the emperor at the annual emperor worship festival. So they literally kept track of everybody in this town. It's time for us to go and offer sacrifice to the emperor. And if you didn't go do it, they didn't just tell you you need to next time. They would execute you. Capital offense. That's what was going on in Smyrna. And it was happening under the reign of Domitian. 
which is the, the, the emperor during the time when Paul, uh, John's writing this to the church there. This pressure was made worse, we read here in this verse, um, because of the slander of the unbelieving Jews who were in the city, whom Jesus said were not true Jews, but were of the synagogue of Satan. They were presumably Jews of the same type that Jesus confronted. Think of anything that Jesus said to the Pharisees that connected them to the devil in any way? You're of your father, the devil. And, and who is this devil? What's he doing? He's your father and he's the father of lies. He's the father of lies. That's what Jesus confronted them about. It was a notable sin that Jesus said, you guys are liars like your father the devil who's been a liar from the beginning. Now, has Jesus changed his tune here in Smyrna about what he's accusing them of? He doesn't use the word liars. He uses the word blasphemers or slanderers. Slanderers is how it's translated here. What's, what's to, what is it to slander somebody? Yeah, it's to lie about them in hopes of getting them in some sort of trouble, right? Trying, trying to make trouble for them somehow by lying about them. This is the exact same thing that's going on in Smyrna. The, the Jews were evidently going to the Romans and lying to them about the Christians. Now, we learned some stuff in history. It's kind of interesting to know what were the kinds of things that Christians were accused of during this time period, under the persecution of Domitian in particular. What kind, they were accused of cannibalism is one of them. You know why? The Lord's Supper. There was a, it was a misunderstanding about what the Lord's Supper was. These guys who didn't know what they were doing or why they were doing it. What are you, you're eating the flesh of Jesus? Like drinking his blood? You guys must be cannibals. What's that? The circumcision? Yeah, the, Jew, the Jews were, were expecting them to, to, wanting them to, you know, participate in the circumcision rituals. And they wouldn't do that, right? They, 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 they said that's not a necessary component anymore to what we're doing. They, they, they despised them for that. They despised Paul 30 years before this for that. And they, they continue to do that. You, you know of any other of the lies that they told? They're cannibals. Yeah, they were rebellious against the emperor. They were traitors. Because why? Because they refused to honor Caesar above Christ. That's what you're supposed to do. No, 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 nobody above Caesar. That has to be your highest, um, your highest uh, uh, allegiance. But you know, these Christians weren't about to do that. Yeah, for this short period of time, the Jews did have that exemption that they didn't have to do the emperor worship because they were recognized as their own religion and, and they knew that they were, they, 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 you know, they were trying to keep the peace as they did in the Pax Romana to keep the Jews satisfied. So they, they were accused of being cannibals, of being traitors. They were actually accused of being atheists. The Christians were accused of being atheists. Why? Because they refused to worship all the gods and goddesses of Rome. You say there's only one god. So... That's no God at all. You're an atheist. Interesting charge, isn't it? Oh, how the, how, how the, how the turns have tabled now. But. Oh, that's for you guys. So. Um, yeah, they, they were also accused of, of um, being anti-family. 
because very often one spouse would convert and the other would not. And so the spouse who wouldn't convert would, would disown their spouse. They would divorce them. They would leave them. It would break up families. So they were accused of being anti-family because they, 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 their, their beliefs were so uh, causing so much division. They were accused of also um, uh, be, being immoral because they, they, they talked a lot and practiced a lot among themselves love. They, like they, they really took the greet one another with a holy kiss thing. And when they were accusing them of doing stuff like that, they took it the, a, a way different way than it was actually being done, right? About they had immorality amongst them and they're worse than we are. They kiss each other and stuff. The guys who were using the temple prostitutes, remember? Yeah, the Christians were way worse than that. At least these are the kinds of things that the Jews were accusing the Christians of to the Romans to get the Romans to start persecuting them. The, the, what's the point? The Jews had the protection of the Roman, uh, the Roman law and they could practice their religion. But what they wanted to demonstrate was the Christians are not us. They are not a sect of Judaism. They do not deserve the protection we have. See, they're cannibals, they're atheists, they're, you know, they're immoral, they're traitors to the crown. We're, we're, good. we're good citizens of Rome. Yeah, all that stuff was going on just that way. We, we get this from what Jesus says here in verse 9 to the church in Smyrna. I know your tribulation, and he says, and I know your poverty. He knew This is, shouldn't be a surprise to us if we think through it, but when society turns against you for your beliefs and they start ostracizing you from, from, from the culture and the society, it has economic uh, impacts on your life, right? So these, these, guys were, these guys were being fired from their jobs. Nobody would hire them for any work. They, they, were, they were poor. They were suffering economically as well as suffering socially and, uh, and, and, and physically, which we'll read about here in a second too. Um, being a believer costs these guys. But yeah, Dina. Yeah, yeah. Is it, if I remember correctly, I mean, the Jews kept saying how, like, okay, Jesus, get control of your disciples. They aren't doing the things that God's people, right? Right. So they believed they were the true children of God. That's right. And there's this real distinction there that popped out to me, like, they're saying that they're the Jews. We're the real Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The those who thought they were the real children of God by mistake because of tradition were the ones who were persecuting the real children of God, and Jesus points that out. Now, if we're right about the timing of what's written here, and this is the mid-90s, this is a decent 20, 25 years after God had allowed the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the entire religious system had fallen apart. There was no more Sanhedrin. There's no more high priest. There's no more temple. There's no more sacrifices being made. All that stuff is done, and these guys are trying to recover something that the Lord has left a generation ago. And he's clear about it. These guys are not... These guys are not the real Jews. The, they're not the spiritual Jews. They're not the children of Abraham in the way of believing and trusting in me, right? They're ethnic and Jewish, perhaps, in some way or another, but they're just going around causing problems for my real people. And he does point that out, right? 
How bad, was the, the, how bad were the problems where they were going and slandering them to the Romans, trying to get them arrested, wrecking their businesses to where they were poor, they had nothing, everybody looked down on them. Kind of a tough life, it sounds like, a little bit, right? But Jesus puts in parentheses one little phrase. You see it there? Verse 9. I know your poverty, but, but you're actually rich. You're rich. Interesting note, isn't it? Yeah, man. Yeah. 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 There was some division amongst the, the the believers in that thing too. Yeah. Sometimes. That's right. Yep. Jesus points this out. Hey, you guys are suffering and you're poor, but in the important things, you're not really that poor. In fact, he uses the word rich. You guys are rich. Now, I think that that parenthesis means that Jesus is interested in your prosperity and he wants you in this life to have lots of riches for everything to go good for you, right? That, that if you believe in him, he'll, he'll fill your wallet up and it'll get so big you can't put it in your pocket. Anybody sense the sarcasm there? Jesus cannot be talking here about the prosperity that is sometimes falsely taught that God wants you to be successful. That is not what Jesus is talking about. He is not saying, I'm going to turn this around for you and I'm going to restore all your businesses and you guys are going to get rich. All you got to do is just trust in me. Nope, you are already poor, but as it stands right now today, when you have nothing left but me, you're rich. It's directly connected to what he says that I know this, that you guys are standing firm in the faith. Makes you rich. It's a spiritual riches, isn't it, Samantha? It's, I'm pretty sure it's Psalm 72, and it's so beautiful that it says, like, I could see the, the wealth of the world and the prosperity of their peace, but then I go to the people and I don't know Yeah. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good, that's a good reference. Uh, yeah. Psalm 72, some, 73. Things. Somewhere in the Psalms there, right, David says this about like, I look around and I see all the rich guys and I think that maybe the Lord's with them until I go into the temple and I see, see the truth, until I realize the reality of, you know, it doesn't matter what I got in my pocket, it matters what I got in the next life, right? Where are they rich? Are they rich in this world? Doesn't sound like it. Not when he says they're poor, they're living in poverty, but are they rich somewhere? And are they rich in the place where Jesus cares most about? That's a good place to be. To have your riches not in this world, treasures not here, but where? Right? Store up for yourself treasures in heaven where the moth can't eat it up and the rust can't destroy it. The spiritual treasures. Right? This is where you can have. And so Jesus is telling them, what a commendation. Just in that little parenthesis. I, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. Wow. Like, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good commendation. So he rolls off of this verse. He says, I know what's going on. The synagogue of Satan, this place that is of their father, the devil, doing the things that the devil does, lying, slandering you in order to try to get rid of you, to do damage to you and your families, all of that stuff. I know all of that. He says in verse 10, but do not fear what you're about to suffer. Don't be afraid. Now, I said this earlier, what's missing here in the normal structure of the letters is this is the place where Jesus tells some of the other churches, but I have this against you. I know, I know that your tribulation and your suffering and your poverty, but I have this against you, 
but it's missing. He doesn't say that. And because there's nothing that he notes as being wrong, that he's correcting them about, that he's condemning them over, he also doesn't say anything like, so repent. These two things are missing in this letter. And it's not stated here, but I think that, that the underlying message here is that churches that are suffering persecution don't have enough time and energy to really get off on very much if they're going to survive. Persecution's good for the church. It's a terrible, it's a terrible reality if, you know, if we're sitting comfy here where we are in the temperature-controlled room with the padded seats and everything's nice. And, you know, we're not, we're not suffering, we're not poor, there's no tribulation. But to think about it, that we might actually be a more purified, blessed church, one whom Jesus wouldn't have much against, if only there were persecution. It's a, it's a reality that I think is demonstrated here. It's not outrightly stated, but we need to have this recognition. Not that, it, not that we're ever told in the scripture that as churches we should pray for the Lord to send us persecution. In fact, the opposite may be true. But what were they praying about in, in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 4 and 5 when they, when they were being persecuted? What were they praying for? Boldness. They were praying for in the, in the face of suffering and tribulation that was starting to bring the poverty, right? They were praying for boldness, that the gospel would be proclaimed, that the Lord would strengthen them so that they would continue to do this thing. And that, that, that has to be more than our fear about the future, the thing that we have most concern about, if the Lord were to do such a thing. And what he tells these guys is exactly that in verse 10, don't fear what you're about to suffer. He could have said, be courageous, <laughs> be brave, be bold, Right? Don't be afraid. There's something coming. Instead of repent, he gives them a command concerning something that I think is actually a soon coming event. In verse 10, he says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life first thing he told him was don't be afraid about what you're about to suffer how can that be possible here's some verses james 1 who can find james chapter 1 and read some verses there oh sophia you're on it thanks james 1 verses 2 through 4 and then verse 12 make it complicated Yeah. Okay. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Interesting connection, isn't it? It's an interesting connection. You'll be given the crown of life, James says, in verse 12, chapter 1. Isn't that what I just read that Jesus told them in verse 10 of Revelation 2? You guys in Smyrna, don't be afraid. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. That promise is the one that is supposed to spur us on towards being able to endure suffering. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. This 
this, this testing of your faith through persecution produces steadfastness. Count it, count it joy when you, you, you meet these trials because what's God doing in you? He's working the full effect of suffering into your life, verse 4, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You're lacking in nothing if you can endure the suffering and stand firm in the faith. It will be a blessing to you that will result in you receiving the crown of life. Where do you suppose James got that idea from? Probably the Lord. He told some other guys the same thing here to this letter in Smyrna, didn't he? It's the same thing. How can you, how can you do this? And no, nobody thinks about this as like suffering. We, we enjoy that. That's not the point. But I got to ask the question because it's talked about periodically. Do any of you think that there might be suffering for Christians on the horizon here? You see any mounting opposition that could result in some sort of a tribulation, some sort of a suffering, some sort of a persecution in the land of the free and the home of the brave? Right? If you do, and most of us seem to may think that could be possible, I'm no prophet or the son of a prophet to predict such a thing, but if it were to happen, we've got to have some of this stuff in mind. It's good to be prepared so that we're not afraid when it happens. I mean, you don't suppose this command's only for those guys in Smyrna, do you? <laughs> no, this was passed around and there was, we'll, we'll read, not today, I don't think with the time, but the next church he writes to in Pergamum, they got the, they got the same sort of persecution and suffering going on there. So it's not just a one, one church, one time thing. I, I, I have this big giant commentary book written by a guy named Steve Gregg and he said this, that fearlessness may not necessarily mean the total absence of fear but rather the refusal to succumb to its intimidation so that the threats of hard times don't turn us back from our duty to Christ. It's not, it doesn't mean the absence of fear, fearlessness, or don't be afraid. It means don't give in to the fear. Control it. Have some self-control over that thing. How am I to get in self-control? I've got to have the right mindset about what suffering does and why the Lord uses it what he might be trying to bring, what he might be trying to give me. It's hard to see it as a blessing, but you can see the result of it as a blessing. Therefore, who here wants to be more conformed to the image of Christ? Who, who here wants to be more perfect in all things spiritual, all things Christian? Right? Some of that stuff only comes out of the crucible of suffering. Some of that suffering may be persecution. No guarantees, but they were facing a persecution that I think was imminent, immediate, something specific in the way that, that John writes this. He says um, uh, there in, in verse 10 that there's going to be some event that's going to land a bunch of them in prison. The devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you'll have tribulation. Now, there are some who hold the different views of interpreting the book of Revelation particularly the historicists who believe that this stuff is, you know, speaking of time periods and stuff, they, they say that this isn't 10 days that guys are going to be in prison, which is my interpretation, but rather it's 10 future waves of persecution under, under the Romans. And Smyrna represents some other thing about the time of the church under the Roman persecution, and they, they build these things into it. But um, I, I don't see this symbolism as anything meaningful for the church in Smyrna at that moment, which I think is who Jesus is actually writing to. 
the way that he wrote the other letters to the other churches through, say, the Apostle Paul, right? When Paul writes to the Corinthian church about an actual issue that's actually going on in their church right at that moment where there's a guy sleeping with his stepmom, like that was applicable right to them. There's principles laid out there that are helpful for all the rest of us if we see something else like that, but but he was writing a specific thing. I think John's doing the same thing, that Jesus is doing the same thing through John here, that this is something that the Lord is warning them about, that there's a, a persecution coming where a bunch of you are going to be arrested and thrown into jail for 10 days. And it seems that the Lord wants them to know a couple of things, at least this, that the devil's been working through that synagogue of Satan. The devil's the one operating here. The, he, has a, he has a base of operation there happens to be in the synagogue where the Jews are not real Jews, but they're the ones who are persecuting my people now, right? And, and, and they're evidently going to be given their way with the Christians pretty soon. They're going to ha- have some level of success. They're going to get you guys arrested. But, but he wants them to know, I'm going to limit that to 10 days. You'll be 10 days in jail. What is this event? History has no clue. Nobody, nobody really knows. I just think it reads like an actual real event that was about to happen, that he was giving them specific warning about for something to be helpful for them right there at that moment. But it does lay out a principle, doesn't it? That, that Jesus says elsewhere, that there are times when tribulations will be so bad that he'll purposefully cut the time short so that the elect might not fall. He's doing that in Smyrna. That that's, that's a principle by which the, the Lord takes care of us. You might have suffering, but it's not going to be more than you can endure if you stay faithful to me. You stay grounded on the rock who is Christ. He tells the church in Smyrna basically the same thing. We, we, we know from history not what the 10-day persecution was or how many got arrested or what happened to them after they were arrested necessarily, although the, the text tells us what happens to them. They, after they died, then they got the crown of life, so they, you know, they, they, they were killed in this 10 days of of imprisonment ended with their execution, it would seem, Jesus says. But this isn't the last of the persecution in Smyrna. Anybody know Smyrna's most famous martyr was killed there some 50 years after this? Direct disciple of John named Polycarp so is probably the most famous of the, of the martyrs of Smyrna. It was right here in this city that they executed uh, Polycarp about 50 years after this, year 155. Polycarp was, uh, was known as the Bishop of Smyrna. He was a direct disciple of John, the apostle who's writing the Revelation. And, it, and, and tradition holds that they burned him at the stake. And when he wouldn't die, they started stabbing him with swords and spears until he did. Right? They, sort of, they didn't get the fire hot enough to kill him right away, so they had to, they had to stab him to death while he's on fire. You read about Polycarp in a few of the old... Uh, martyr books and stuff but like polycarp jesus warned these guys here that they're going to be thrown in prison and they're going to end up giving their lives to maintain their testimony of christ i mean look at he says be faithful unto death i'll give you the crown of life now think for a second where we started how can jesus make such a promise you'll die but you're going to get the crown of life what's that yeah because He's the one who died and has risen from the dead. He has victory over death, right? See the connection? He's telling them the same thing. This is actually going to happen to you guys. You only got a couple weeks to wait, maybe. Right? Then the crown of life. He, 
Yeah, this is what he promises to those who love him, right? If you stay true to me, if you, if you love me, this is what's going to happen. They, he's already overcome death, so he's living and he can give that to them, right? That's the same crown of life to all believers who stay faithful. Think back again to James 1.12. I lost the page, but we just read this, but I didn't write it again. James, James 1.12 there. Ah. Again, says this, that, that uh, uh, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. That's what you just read. I knew it sounded familiar. Thanks. So this is the promise of, of Christ. He's, he's giving it to this, this church here. How does he end the letter? Verse 11. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Right, what the, the Spirit says to the churches, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Well, you know where we read about the second death? Aside from here, in this chapter? End of Revelation. The end of Revelation. In chapter 20 and 21. Revelation 20, verse 14. What do you want to read some more? Thanks, Sophia. Yeah, so this is this is the, the defeat of Satan, the great white throne judgment, the throne has come, and death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Chapter twenty, verse fourteen says this is the second death. The lake of fire. What else do we call that? Hell. Hell right? The place of eternal torment, condemnation, burning forever, the lake of fire. A little bit later in the next chapter in verse 8, Revelation 21, 8, the, the Lord says this, After the new heavens and the new earth have, have, have arrived, he speaks to John to tell him once more about what's going to happen at this judgment. He says, As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now for those who who stand firm in the faith, who don't give up in the face of persecution or any other kind of suffering, they will not face the second death. Jesus told those guys in Smyrna. They're not going to be hurt by the second death. They're not, they're, 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 they're not going to face the eternal torments of hell, right? It's not even going to touch them. This is, this is uh, the, the curse of, of death that Jesus overcame, Right? We learn, we learn here especially that it's not just that he's saving us from a physical death. That's not even true. We all are going to physically die. What's the, what's the death that he's saving us from that he's most concerned about, that we should be most concerned about? Not the first death, second death. Oh, you're going to die. You're going to die anyway. Do you know that about yourself? You're going to die. Maybe from a minor respiratory virus or maybe a car runs you over when you're a 24-year-old professional athlete guy or maybe, maybe your heart just stops beating, right? You can't, I mean, there's a thousand ways to die, probably more than that, but that's it. Hebrews 9.27, exactly right. It's appointed to every man wants to die. And then the judgment. The judgment's the bigger concern because the result of that judgment is yes, second death or no second death. That's a bigger deal. And that's what we see in Revelation. And so Jesus is already, already attaching this to the final judgment. And he's telling these guys exactly this. It's a fairly basic message, but um, it, 
and, and, and there's only four verses. He doesn't write like a whole treatise. He didn't take nearly so long to write it as it took for me to try to talk about it and connect it elsewhere in the Bible. But this is a consistent message of the Scripture. And as we sit from where we sit and look into the future and think, I could see how persecution could come. may not come, but I could see how it could come. We've got to have some preparation for this. That's the encouragement. He, doesn't say for, he says, for all those who have ears, listen to this. Not just to these ancient guys in Smyrna and this 10-day trial thing, and then it's over for everybody else. But the Spirit says to all of us, the church is then and the church is now. If you'll conquer this, if you'll conquer the persecution and the suffering and the tribulation, you won't be hurt by the second death. That's how this connects to us. Probably a good place to stop since we're actually over time. But <laughs> any other thoughts or questions at the moment? Next, next time, maybe, maybe this will work. Maybe one church a week will do this over the next however long. But Pergamum will be next. But we didn't even start that today, but that's good. we got some stuff ready for next time. All right, so let's pray. Lord, I thank you this morning for, for uh, this, this being actually true, that, that, that we know you as the first and the last, the one who died and yet came to life. Lord, I thank you for the promise for those who are involved in some sort of suffering, particularly the persecution that comes from maintaining our, our faith and our witness for you, Lord. I thank you that you give these assurances that, that any who overcome these things will be given the crown of life and won't be hurt by the second death. Lord, I thank you for that great promise, and we know that you're able to give that promise because you yourself had victory over death. You've already been raised from the dead. And so that is our hope and our certainty that one day we will also be raised with you, to be made like you, to be joined with you to be fully united into your kingdom with you, to, to, to experience all of, the, all of the blessings that we only know in just a small portion in our lives today. Lord, I pray that you would help us by making these things a little bit bigger portion in our lives, that this wouldn't be something at the back of our minds, but that it would be more towards the front, that we, that we would be mindful of these things, that, that we want to be like these guys, no matter whether we're poor or rich in this world. We want to be rich in the things that you give to us, rich in knowing you, rich in the things of, of, of heaven, even if it means that we're poor here. Lord, I pray you'd help us to get this right perspective, help us to know the blessing that it can be to be fully formed in you through the, through the, the, the result of suffering. Lord, I thank you for the example you've left us here, for your care for those believers then, and for your care for us believers here now. Just thank you for all these things and pray that you would give us, give us uh, mouths to sing to you the praises that you're due for these truths that we learned again today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.